managing bison, musk ox, caribou, and people in the Canadian North. An extended interview with John Sandlos. I'm Sean Courage, and this is episode three of Nature's Past, a podcast of the network in Canadian history and environment. Canadian North has received increased attention from environmental historians in the past few years. This has included excellent books like Lyle Dick's Muskox Land, Ellesmere Island in the Age of Contact, Julie Cruikshank's Do Glaciers Listen, Local Knowledge, Colonial Encounters, and Social Imagination, and Lisa Piper's forthcoming book, The Industrial Transformation of Subarctic Canada. Historical studies of the environment of Canada's northern territories have taken on new urgency and importance due to the significant ecological changes this region is currently experiencing as a result of global warming and industrial resource exploitation. Wildlife populations in Canada's north are feeling the impact of these changes, but how have humans managed these animals in the past? This is the subject of John Sanlos's award-winning book, Hunters at the Margin, Native People and Wildlife Conservation in the Northwest Territories, published by the University of British Columbia Press. In this book, Professor Sanlos takes readers through the long history of federal wildlife conservation policy in Canada's Northwest Territories from the end of the 19th century to the late 20th century, examining both the ecological and social consequences of state conservation efforts. In particular, he focuses on the lives of the region's native population and its relationship with an encroaching colonial state. To find out more about the history of wildlife conservation in Canada's Northwest Territories, I spoke with John Sandlos. Hello, my name is John Sandlos and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Thanks for joining us, John. Uh, we're talking today about your book, Hunters at the Margin. Uh, I just wanted to start by asking you, uh, what brought you to the topic of wildlife conservation in the Northwest Territories? Um, back in the late 1990s, I, I actually lived in a small northern community um, uh, named Fort Resolution on the south shore of Great Slave Lake. And I went on a caribou hunt, was fortunate enough to go on a caribou hunt with a number of the elders. And they talked a lot about wildlife conservation issues. That, that was sort of the genesis, that whole experience. Um, it was a bit of an eye-opener being a bit of an urban creature going to the north and, and seeing animals killed for the first time. I came back, I started my PhD at York University in 1998, and I started just reading the literature and environmental history, um, and I came across Janet Foster's Working for Wildlife. And it had in it a number of passages that were quoted somewhat uncritically, I would argue, um, about how uh, Native people were wantonly slaughtering wildlife, how uh, roving bands of Indians had killed this and that uh, herd of wildlife and so on. And I thought to myself, there must, be, there must be more to this story than that in terms of understanding the relationship between Native people and wildlife conservation. So I decided to pursue the topic further and make it the, the, the core of my PhD studies. 
Well, the book is really interesting, and I think first and foremost, um, it it it's a real rethinking of the history of wildlife conservation in Canada. Can you describe or discuss a little bit how your research and what you've argued in this book challenges or reevaluates previous research on the history of wildlife conservation in Canada? Well, I took Janet Foster's book as a, as a starting point, and. Um, I, I would say there are two main uh, points that I try to make in the book, two main arguments uh, that I try to bring forth. The first one is that wildlife conservation was not the product of disinterested uh, federal civil servants who were using science, who were um, exploring a preservationist philosophy, the idea that we should preserve nature for nature's sake. Um, that in fact, uh, these people um, in, in the early federal bureaucracy, in the early conservation bureaucracy, were much more interested in exploiting wildlife for commercial purposes than they were sim simply uh, trying to preserve them. There are many references in the documentation to conservationists wanting to domesticate caribou, for example, or domesticate musk oxen, or um, or import reindeer from uh, from Europe so that 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 wildlife could be become uh, become the basis of uh, of uh, industrial ranching in in northern Canada. The second point that I, I I argued was that there is a social justice issue tied to the early conservation movement. Right. That native people ha have uh, depended on on wildlife for food for clothing. And, and that conservation in many ways uh, was a way of trying to assert control over their, their material practices, their way of life. Um, it was a way for the state to, uh, to try to organize and, and control their livelihoods in a way that was acceptable and amenable to the agenda of commercializing wildlife, controlling wildlife, and, and so on. Um, so there was a there was a conflict there, and, and uh, it, that was what I tried to explore. I tried to explore that both the the social injustice that was tied to conservation and also the native response to the extent that was possible given the given the documentation, but I, I tried to explore the native response to the conservation bureaucracy as well. Now your research is really extensive, and I think your reading of the government documents that you look at uh, that are produced by many of these figures in Canadian wildlife conservation history that we'd be familiar with, like Gordon Hewitt uh, and others in the uh, uh, parks branch. Uh, is really good, but you actually didn't have to go too far uh, beyond some of the, the mainstays of, of the documentation, like uh, Conservation of Wildlife in Canada by Gordon Hewitt provides you with a lot of uh, mm -hmm. source material here to support your argument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this, this wasn't subtle at all. This wasn't, uh, this was uh, this was something that was uh, fundamental to the, the philosophy of conservation at that time, that wildlife should be conserved for useful purposes. And uh, a lot of people, I'm, I'm, when I started this, I thought I was the only one out here doing this kind of thing. But as you say, that the, the, uh, this, this idea was so prominent in the documentation, I think other historians have picked up on it. People like George Colpitz and Tina Liu have, have also produced similar works, works that came out slightly ahead of mine, but I'm glad that we're all sort of in the same boat. And I think the works complement each other very nicely. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, because I think it was just something that was crying out to be a story that was crying out to be told because, uh, because again, it is just so obvious in the documentation that this was the main philosophy of wildlife conservation at that time. 
So moving into some of the content of the book then, I wanted to ask you uh, about uh, the, the breakdown of the way the book is organized along three uh, large game species, the uh, wood buffalo, the uh, muskox, and the caribou. Uh, what, how did you come to the decision to, to frame the book in this manner? Mm-hmm. There, it was it was an organizing principle. In, in, in part, my sources were organized that way. There were large, uh, voluminous files devoted simply to the bison and the management of the northern bison or, or the management of bison within Wood Buffalo National Park. There were large files devoted to caribou management, and, and it was a similar case for musk oxen. But I really... I. I could have done a more global study that would have involved fur-bearing animals and so on, and there is a lot more research that could be done in that area, but I just felt that the narrative the quality of the book would uh, would decline unless there could be a story told, or in this case, three separate but linked stories. And I, I wanted to focus on big game species rather than fur bears because, um, because of their importance as food. Uh, there's no doubt that fur-bearing animals were fundamental to the the economy of of native people right up into even contemporary times. The uh, the the fur trade is important uh, as a supplementary form of income to to native communities. But I was interested in the conflict over food and what we could call, I suppose, bare subsistence, um, food and clothing, shelter in certain cases, and in certain cases, hides were used to make tents and so on. And this seemed to me to be the most um, uh, stark conflict between a state trying to control access to something as essential as food and, and clothing. Right. Um, and so the large game animals hold a, a special place for northerners uh, as well as southerners. I think so. I think many of these animals have become iconic for southerners. You're right. Um, caribou, uh, images of caribou migrating across the tundra in a, in a sort of curious way. Many people have not seen that image, or they haven't experienced it directly, but for many, it is uh, something that they would see as fundamental to Canadian identity. That whole idea that Canada is a northern nation and so on. Um, there are problems with this idea, but nonetheless, I think it holds and has held a powerful sway within Canadian popular culture. Um, at the same time, these animals are thought of, I think, differently uh, by Northerners. They are a source of food. I don't think Northerners reduce them to a mere resource. I think um, they appreciate and respect the animals and so on. Uh, there's a whole debate about that. Um, but but um, there's just a different sense. When you're using something for food, um, it's, it's very different than regarding it as some kind of cultural icon. And so I, I think there, that that was maybe something that underlay the conflict. There were books being published at that time uh, talking about the romance of the caribou. There was one case actually in Newfoundland. It was the romance of the Newfoundland caribou, and it was full of photographs of uh, these animals. And, and, um, and also hunters, I think, uh, southern hunters saw these animals as being iconic, the last big game species on the continent that right. could be hunted. They held a, a special place for those people as well, and they wanted to lay claim to those animals as well. So there were a lot of competing discourses we could say about these animals and who would who would actually maintain control over them who would have ownership over them so let's talk about some specifics uh why mm -hmm. did canadian wildlife officials transfer more than 6000 plains bison to wood buffalo national park in the 1920s and what was the effect of this decision well as with the movement of people there were push factors and there were pull factors and uh probably the push factors were most important there was a, a national park 
created in 1911, I believe, um, on the southern plains near, near Wainwright. And it was a place where there had been a previous relocation of by the herd that was bought from a private owner in the United States. And Canada was hailed as having saved the plains bison for uh, purchasing this herd and transferring them to an enclosed park. In other words, it had a fence around it um, at Wainwright, Alberta. And it was called Buffalo National Park. And there were no predators in this park. It was basically a, a kind of glorified uh, bison paddock. It was fairly large, but, uh, but inevitably what happened is, is that the, the bison started to outstrip their range. The population grew in the absence of predators. And also, through means that are not well understood, they became infected with diseases. Tuberculosis, mm. it, it was known at that time that they were infected with tuberculosis, possibly from contact with cattle over the fence. Nobody's, nobody's really sure. Um, it could have been contact with cattle when they were owned uh, the, the, when they were owned privately in Montana. At any rate, they they started to outstrip the range. They were diseased. We know in retrospect they had another disease called brucellosis, which causes uh, spontaneous abortions with pregnant mm. females. So two diseases present. Um, but the government decided that one way to deal with this problem of an overcrowded range would be to ship. Uh, hundreds, and it ended up being thousands of these animals north to Wood Buffalo National Park. And here's the pull factor. That park, being 12,000 square kilometers, mm -hmm. was felt to be understocked. And so here you have, again, the resource management philosophy of the time. We can produce more animals if we fill up a range that where the animals are relatively absent. At, at that time, um, again, it's difficult to, to determine from the ground, but it was felt that there were only about 1,500 bison uh, within Wood Buffalo National Park. In the southern park, Buffalo National Park, there were, um, there were plains bison uh, numbering upwards of 12,000 animals. So between 1925 and 1928, 7,000 of these animals were shipped north by rail and barge. The effect of this was that uh, not only did the animals become sick with tuberculosis and brucellosis, but there's been an ongoing debate about the degree of hybridization between plains bison and wood bison. And again, it's a, it's a developing debate as now we're into the world of genetic uh, testing, mm -hmm. um, but there's a whole debate about the degree to which the wood bison is a separate subspecies from the plains bison. But at any rate, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer now because there, there has been hybridization all along and we don't really have any pure wood bison to act as a, as a control. So the effect was, again, uh, many people feel one of the worst conservation disasters in Canadian history. Uh, it made a, an isolated herd of bison sick, this, the relocation, and it also resulted potentially in hybridization between two uh, subspecies of, of animals. And, and this, this decision uh, wasn't taken without opposition? No. There was opposition between what we, uh, from what we might call the independent scientific community. Um, they felt again the uh, they focused a lot on the hybridization issue. It fits with the, the zoological where, where zoology was at that time. Uh, real interest on and sort of splitting uh, uh, wildlife into specific subspecies and, and preserving those species both within the laboratory in the form of, of uh, skeletal remains, but also in the wild. There was vociferous opposition actually internationally amongst zoologists, but also the issue of disease was prominent. Many people were concerned about that. The government discounted all of these pro protests. They felt 
for example, that if they released the plains bison in the more southerly reaches of the park, there was a band of muskeg that would keep the wood bison and the plains bison apart from one another. Of course, this neglected the fact that eight months out of the year, this muskeg is frozen and there's free movement across it. Um, there, there was the government also dismissed the disease concern by saying, well, we're only going to uh, export yearlings to the park, so one year old or under. But we now know that tuberculosis is a, is a very virulent disease. It it um, it spreads. It, it's very e difficult to get rid of in a herd of animals once it's present. You pretty much have to kill off. If you have a herd of cattle, say 100 cattle, and even 20 or 30 percent of them are sick with tuberculosis, you pretty much have to slaughter them all to get rid of the disease. To have any chance mm -hmm. of getting rid of the disease. So um, yearlings would have had the disease passed on to them. And then, of course, in the actual corralling of these animals, it's not clear that even they were even able to stick to yearlings uh, when they transported the animals because it was a fairly chaotic processes. They were rounding up animals and shoving them onto rail cars and, and then subsequently onto barges. Let's turn our attention to the second uh, big game animal uh, in the mm -hmm. book, the muskox. Why did the, the muskox receive so much attention from federal wildlife officials by the 1920s? It, it's a similar story to the bison, uh, but Perhaps, perhaps we could, I think we could say it's a more extreme example in terms of the plans the government had, although they never really achieved much with those plans. On the one hand, the government was concerned about the status of the species. There, mm -hmm. They had fairly good data suggesting that a fur trade, the fur trade that had uh, been going on at least since the 1880s, but even going back into the time of Hearn and some of the early, you know, the early uh, involvement of the Hudson Bay Company in the region. There had been uh, muskox hides exported from the region, but they had data going back into the 1880s showing that the number being killed had declined over the years. Um, and also, there was pretty clear evidence that at least on the mainland part of the Arctic, people were just weren't seeing these animals in any kind of numbers anymore. They had become extirpated from certain regions in the north. So there was a conservation concern. There were many, there were some studies done by naturalists on the ground. <laughs> Again, always a problematic method to try to survey a wildlife species from the ground. But, but at any rate, it, there did seem to be some indication that the numbers were in a bit of a free fall state. At the same time, the government was being influenced by uh, several explorers, um, entrepreneurs, and so on, suggesting that the muskox, <coughs> excuse me, the muskoxen might make uh, uh, a good herd animal for the north, uh, an adequate or, a, or uh, an especially apt ranch animal. It would be an animal that, unlike domestic cattle, could survive the rigors of the cold, but they would also supply, according to the boosters, hides, uh, wool ultimately was, was uh, something that they felt that they, they could exploit from these animals. And there are all kinds of studies done about whether this, the, the hair could become effective wool and, and yarn and so on. Um, meat, of course, was, a, was thought to be a, a marketable byproduct. And also milk, um, it was felt could be a, a large-scale industrial product that could be produced in the region. Um, the most famous booster of this idea was Wilhelmer Stephenson, the, the famous explorer. He, right. he wrote, uh, he waxed uh, eloquently about the muskox and he talked about their herd instincts, how they were relatively docile, easy to control, 
how their meat was tasty, although many people disagreed with this idea, um, and how that they could produce milk on a, on a commercial scale. So he actually managed to reach some of the most senior levels of the uh, Canadian government with the idea that the musk oxen should be domesticated, also that reindeer should be imported, and that, that this would be the basis of a thriving ranching industry in the north, that this would be the base for actually industrializing the north. And Stephenson used this you know, in retrospect, the, the rhetoric is remarkable. He called it a future polar Mediterranean where there'd be cities and factories humming and all these ranches supplying uh, relatively inexpensive meat as the agricultural base of the, of the region. The government did do some experiments with musk oxen, but distance uh, from markets, uh, the fact that the, the animals were not really that easy to herd or control, they were not domestic animals at all, rendered many of these experiments relative failures, although there still is uh, an experimental herd as, as a result of corresponding work in Alaska. There still is an experimental herd uh, at uh, University of uh, Alaska at Fairbanks, so there is still a sort of a relic of, the, of that era, but, um, but it was never really, uh, the, nothing was ever really achieved on the scale that Stephenson and many government officials had imagined, but they really felt they had to clamp down and conserve this animal or this opportunity to exploit it as a, as a potential ranch animal would be lost. Now, the case of the muskox is really interesting because of this desire to industrialize the north and spread settlement if the, the mm -hmm. animal could be domesticated and used for meat production and, mm -hmm. and used for other purposes. And again, this is pointing to this argument you're making about uh, the tension between uh, preservation and management and conservation that's expressed mm -hmm. by uh, single people in, in and of themselves in one statement will make a statement about preserving an animal at the same time, mm -hmm. extolling its values for exploitation. How do you uh, reconcile what may at first glance seem to be contradictory or cross-purposes on the part of the government? Mm -hmm. I think it only seems contradictory to... In, with hindsight, I, I think there is more and more evidence that uh, coming out of the United States, coming out of Canada, that at least in the North American context, uh, preservationists like John Muir were relatively rare. That people who worked within government and so on used preservationist language and what we would call conservationist language or wise use language mm -hmm. interchangeably. They adopted whatever arguments. These are practical people. These are not these are not environmental philosophers. Mm -hmm. They are not, um, you know, they're not Thoreau's. They're not Muir's. They are trying to garner support for programs they're trying to implement. And that means getting line items put into place on, 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 on budgets, uh, convincing Treasury Board, convincing the Prime Minister's office, convincing ministers and deputy ministers that this or that program ought to be supported. And that involves a certain amount of pragmatism. And I think any time that any of us deal with government, whether it's applying for research grants or whether it's, it's, um, it's, it's um, any number of things that, that we might uh, uh, interact with. We do try to couch things in terms of uh, a potential benefit to the economy. I and mean, that seems to be the way we're moving, or at least a societal benefit. So I don't, think, I don't think it should be surprising in a lot of ways that these people made pragmatic arguments. We should conserve these animals because it's going to have a commercial benefit down the line. Uh, and, and that they would try to make this conservation um, appeal uh, and frame it in terms of a colonization effort in the, in the north. And again, this is a fundamental argument in, in the book that, that both the effort to control native access to wildlife and the effort to commercialize it was a two-pronged approach to colonizing the region. However, uh, the success, however much the success of that effort might have been, been limited. So I don't think that we should be surprised by this. At the same time, 
I don't really believe that, given my experience with the records, that Canadian wildlife officials were adopting a, a strategy of what Doug Wiener calls protective coloration. He argues in the Soviet Union, which was so rigidly ideological at that time, that conservationists really changed their tune, particularly when Stalin comes into power. They start to publish um, articles, tracts, and so on that are friendly to the state, that are friendly to communism. They start to turn the national parks into, much like in Canada, production areas for wildlife. They start importing wildlife that might be, again, commercially useful and so on. But it's clear because we have a sort of before and after communism state that these people did change over time, that they, they tried to make arguments um, that would appeal to the state uh, and appeal to the government and, and appeal to the Communist Party, but at the same time they were acting subversively to, to put in place more what they felt were more rational conservation policies. I don't think that that's the case with Canadian wildlife officials at all. I think they actually mm -hmm. believe part of their public duty was to contribute to economic development. And, and the, two, the two most heightened periods of conservation activity within the federal bureaucracy, not, perhaps not coincidentally, after the two wars, when you have people returning, being given civil service jobs, um, there's, a, there's a great deal of enthusiasm for conservation within the halls of the bureaucracy in the 20s and in the 50s and the 60s. But at the same time, it corresponds with a great deal of enthusiasm for trying to boost the economy and set things back on the right track after the, the, uh, the difficulties and, and the austerity associated with the wars and, and ultimately the depression as well. So there's a great deal of enthusiasm widely, for, wild, widely within the bureaucracy for economic boosterism. Hmm. And, uh, and so conservation became tied very closely to that program. And I think conservation enthusiastically supported economic development programs. And you make another important point in the book uh, that the federal state in Canada isn't monolithic and at times fights with itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk a bit about instances in which uh, wildlife conservation policy uh, abutted other federal policies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, uh, the sort of, I suppose you could say, the, the bureaucratic bee in the bonnet of the federal wildlife bureaucracy was generally the Department of Indian Affairs, which was also part of the colonial apparatus, but at the same time, um, perhaps not for completely altruistic reasons, uh, but at any rate, I'll, I'll explain that in a moment, but the Department of Indian Affairs was very concerned about any conservation um, legislation or conservation regulations that might restrict native access to game, particularly in areas where there were not easy alternative sources of food. Um, the reason for this, it's quite clear from the documentation, is that they were concerned about mounting welfare bills or relief bills, to use the language of the day. They did not want their budgets to go up. Um, they did participate in some of the programs to divert native hunting attention away from species such as caribou that were thought to be in decline by, for example, distributing fishing nets and so on. And you could call this a kind of soft path to conservation, right? Instead of regulations, you try to get people to exploit other sources of food and, and so on. And in some cases, actually, Indian Affairs tended to be better at this than the Department of Northern Affairs, which tended to give people, you know, nets with holes in them and so on. There were some successful fishing programs in northern Saskatchewan, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, but their role in this is not 
it, it's it's complicated. They, I wouldn't say that they were defending Aboriginal rights in any sense, the uh, sense of the the way that we understand hunting and, and fishing rights today. They were simply trying to avoid these welfare bills. So where they felt Native people would have access to other types of employment or other types of food, they were not so stringent in their defense of of Native access to uh, to game. Um, so it's a very complicated role. And yes, the environmental history literature has. Uh, particularly the, the literature on colonialism and colonized environments has noted that different wings of the state can develop different attitudes uh, to, to people who are undergoing the process of colonization. So I think the story of Northern Canada fit that very nicely, although the agendas are not always pure, as I pointed out. Uh, in the conclusion of your book, you write, the federal government's attempts to assert control over northern wildlife populations were also efforts to establish administrative control over native hunters in the region. Can you explain mm -hmm. the relationship between government policies to control native people in the north and wildlife conservation? Can mm -hmm. we understand um, uh, the history of wildlife conservation without looking at how governments manage the human inhabitants of the north? Yes, I mean wildlife conservation. It's it's very interesting. The first federal um, uh, bureaucratic uh, setup in the North uh, was in Fort Smith. There was a building constructed, and that was specifically constructed not only to to administer the South Slave region, <coughs> excuse me, but it was also set up to administer Wood Buffalo National Park. The first law enforcement agencies in the North were, for the most part brought there to to um, enforce the game regulations, not only the game wardens in Wood Buffalo National Park, but also there was at least one game warden in the Phelan Game Sanctuary, but um, one of the big duties of the Royal Northwest Mounted Police, or later the, 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 uh, the RCMP, was again to enforce the game regulations, and a lot of, a lot of um, the police were actually sent on on uh, on uh, on wildlife patrols within the region. I mean, they were looking for other things as well. There were there was a a broad mandate accorded to the police, but I think um, there's no doubt that enforcing game regulations and trying to protect wildlife populations provided a major impetus for the government to set up RCMP detachments, obviously game warden stations, and so on. And it and it also later on in the post World War II period became one of the major duties of, of um, what we might call colonial agents such as northern service officers who live within Arctic communities. And one of their major jobs was to uh, try to convince people not to hunt certain species and so on. So I wouldn't say wildlife conservation was the only um, uh, was the only factor leading to an increased presence of the administrative state in the region. But I think there is no question that some of the earliest exploration initiatives, some of the earliest human agents of the state went into the region to look for wildlife, to assess the, the extent and the degree to which Native people were hunting the, that wildlife, and ultimately to try, however difficult that might be given the distances and the, the amount of territory they had to cover, to try to enforce those regulations for the first time. And again, some of the first legislation directed at the North was, uh, was actually game laws. So I, I think it's not the only reason people were interested in the North. There were lots of factors involved, but I think it has been something that's perhaps un been underrepresented in the, in the historical literature on the region, which tends to focus on industrial development as an agent of colonization and militarization as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you point to several <coughs> episodes of native resistance to wildlife conservation laws <coughs> in the North, uh, as other environmental historians have. Uh, looking at uh, cases in which Native people have been prosecuted for violating uh, uh, game regulations. Um, 
Were Native people in Northern Canada violating these regulations as an act of political resistance, uh, or was this an act of uh, survival, uh, or is it a combination of both? Uh, it's, it's very difficult to tell from the records but um, uh, in individual cases. But we do know from the international literature that, that um, hunting um, as, as a form of resistance to state control is a, is a very prominent strategy amongst indigenous groups. We also know in northern Canada that many of the trials of, of uh, native hunters that were brought in for killing a bison, for example, within Wood Buffalo National Park became a showcase for chiefs uh, and other community leaders to testify and complain about the stringency of the game regulations. Mm -hmm. Now again, it is difficult to try to read between the lines because sometimes the strategy was to assert a, a right to hunt, a kind of um, uh, precursor of the militancy that we saw later on in the 1970s, or at least the, the, at least the increased mm -hmm. political activism, maybe calling it militancy is going too far. But um, So we see a political element of that. We also see what I would call a um, a kind of uh, uh, almost uh, a bowing down approach, uh, uh, an effort to try to supplicate the government and say, well, we're sorry we did this. We're sorry that we hunted these animals. We know it was wrong, but we were hungry and we were starving. So please have mercy on us. That was another strategy that Native people uh, used. And, and so again, the degree to which these are political acts acts of hunger and desperation and so on. It's a very hard line to, to, to sort of parse and, and split. It's a very, very thin hair to split. But it, I think I, you can successfully argue that was, without a doubt, over the broad range of actions that were taken in response to the game regulations, there was a political element to all of it because we do know that Native people, for example, would refuse treaty money when they didn't like game regulations that had been sent down from Ottawa the previous year. They would go to the treaty meeting, the annual treaty meeting, and just refuse to take treaty, which, is, which was a very much a, 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 an organized political protest. We, and, and again, I've mentioned the trials. We also know that there were lots of cases where wardens would go out into remote areas and they would report that they had talked to Native people and, and they had been uh, harangued uh, on account of the game regulations. We also have, I also found at least some files where there are protest letters from Native people where they argue in direct political terms that their right to hunt, that they had lived on that land their whole life, and their right to hunt on that land had been violated by, by the game regulations. Some of the letters alternate between this more submissive tone I mentioned earlier and a more direct political uh, tone. But at the same time, it's, it's, um, it, there's no doubt that I think that people were starting to think politically. And I think we can see when, again, when Native people started to use the media more effectively and so on, that hunting rights has been, as a political ideal, an idea has been part of the discourse of Native rights more broadly. And I don't, I don't think that we can take, say, 1970 or take the Berger Inquiry and draw a line and say, only after that time did Native people talk about hunting rights in political terms. Before that, it was only because they're hungry. I don't think that that's, that, that makes any sense. I think there's ample evidence that, that, that Native people pursued hunting rights. There's a continuum of political activity that extends right back into the, the 1920s, I would say. And in terms of your sources, you're very clear in the book uh, about the challenges that you faced in, in trying mm -hmm. to identify uh, and, and, and interpret the actions of Aboriginal people mm -hmm. based on the kinds of sources that you needed to look at. Mm -hmm. um, this was probably the most difficult thing about writing the book. I debated endlessly um, about 
whether it would be wise to go north and, and do interviews. There are several reasons that I didn't. This is a, a regional-wide study, and mm -hmm. as anybody can attest, to try to try to get to you know, all those communities in the north and do interviews, not only would it be a sh kind of shallow community-by-community community study, you know, drop in for five days, talk to people, leave, if you, can t if you could get anybody to even talk to you, mm -hmm. because there's a trust-building element to all of this. But also, many in, in terms of many of the periods I was dealing with, going right back into the 1880s, a lot of people would have passed on that that would have had relevant information. So I felt it would have created, it would have weighted the study to more of a, a recent history. And I really did want to try to capture, spend time on the archival material. I my hope is, and what what is amazing is that it, the, there's already been a case where people are pursuing more focused regional studies or community-based studies where they pick up on some of these things and do that. You know, maybe spend a couple of years in a community studying the the relationship to game and make it a very historically informed uh, study. But uh, uh, Kolchiski and Tester's recent book, um, Talking Back, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Indian word, but uh, I thought it was an excellent example. And, I, and again, uh, uh, dovetails so nicely with my book. I, I really enjoyed reading that. And it was more of a regional study, and they drew material out of interviews they had done and, and so on. And it was exactly the kind of complementary work um, that that I, I think is uh, I, I hope will grow out of out of this continuing interest in the north and the interest of of native people. I, I I think sometimes in Canadian history we're so polite we don't want to write a book on the same topic that somebody else has written. But I'm hoping mm -hmm. this will. I think there's a lot more to this story and that there's more in the archival record and there's more uh, in terms of talking to people that can be done. Now I want to ask you about another type of source uh, that you use in the book, uh, scientific research material. Mm -hmm. uh, there mm -hmm. are many instances in the story that you tell uh, that there's conflicting scientific research, uh, complicated mm -hmm. scientific research, and flawed scientific research. How did you deal with uh, interpreting uh, field studies of wildlife mm -hmm. populations and comparing them to a naturalist's estimations of uh, the caribou herds in the north? Mm -hmm. Well, this is always the problem when you're using scientific studies as a source, but you're trying to maintain, because they can give you certain kinds of environmental information. As environmental historians talk about this all the time. We can gain knowledge of, of on-the-ground ecology from scientific studies, but we also have to be aware of the biases and the limitations of these studies. One way to do this, and maybe it's not fair, it's, it's in some ways a kind of backwards way of doing historical research is to simply assess the evidence in terms of contemporary knowledge. What did they get wrong? A clear example of that was um, at the time, scientists had very uh, high degrees of confidence in aerial surveys, uh, especially in the case of caribou. But if you look at the maps they were using, they were, they were flying transects that were you know, up to 100 kilometers apart. We know now that that, that kind of survey is completely invalid. And people have called those surveys educated guesses. Mm -hmm. and, there, and people have been able to delineate the kinds of surveys in terms of the height off the ground you need to be, the width of the transects, and so on. And we know that those surveys that were done in the 50s and 60s were very problematic, the ones that led to the so-called caribou crisis. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. You can read things um, through contemporary evidence, but also I think just to be aware of situating these, these uh, scientists within their time and place. The post-war period was a period where there was, as, as, as many historians will know, there was a great deal of faith in science. This was the period of high modernism. Science could reveal all, and there was a great deal of faith in technology. So when people started to do, again, aerial surveys, to use aerial photographs, uh, in some limited cases, radio callers, and so on, 
as a means to survey wildlife populations, this was felt to be high-tech, completely accurate, that there was no basis for questioning the evidence. Um, and, and so when people are that confident, the first question you ask as a historian is, well, do they have a right to be that confident? You start to look closely at the numbers. I mean, I even found addition errors in some of these, these reports. There, mm-hmm. and, and, and so there, there was a problem with the science that was being done. It's, the other way of sort of situating this in this time and place is in the post-war period, a lot of people who were doing this science were doing it with undergraduate degrees, maybe a master's degree, almost never a PhD, and almost never under the supervision of somebody with a PhD. The government was creating, was expanding the bureaucracy exponentially at this time, giving returned soldiers, and many of these biologists were returned soldiers, giving them a, an opportunity to work, um, giving them good jobs and so on, all part of the sort of debt owed to these soldiers. And um, many of them were just not that well trained. Many of them achieved PhDs only late in their career. And many of them did, like uh, AWF Banfield, become very influential and important scientists. But at the time they were doing this work in the 50s and the 60s, um, it's, it honestly, in terms of their training, was like sending out a fourth-year undergraduate now and telling them, figure out how to survey these animals with all these new equipment, these new techniques. And there weren't a lot of controls over it. Uh, uh, Ian McTaggart Cowan at UBC was one PhD that was peripherally involved in these wildlife surveys, and he was in fact critical of them, but he was not heeded. Uh, he was not listened to at the time, and that's mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about going through the documents is he had all these criticisms of the first report of declining caribou numbers, and none of his criticisms were incorporated in the final report. So you also have to ask to what extent are bureaucrats taking these reports and simply pulling out the information that is useful to them and, and avoiding any kind of disagreement um, that, might be, that might be exist amongst the scientists. And then I think the second thing you have to ask is to what extent would scientists in the Canadian Wildlife Surveys uh, simply look for results that fit with the bureaucratic agenda of the state at that time. The state wants to control wildlife more. They want, uh, and to a certain extent, and I, do, I don't mean to make this too conspiratorial, but to a certain extent, the state... <coughs> There's an advantage to the state, or at least advantage to an, uh, an organization like the Canadian Wildlife Service, to creating crises, mm-hmm. or exaggerating crises, or at least making it out as bad to be as bad as it could possibly be, given the range of uncertainty involved, because it, it provides self-justification for the next study, for the next managerial intervention for more biologists and so on. I don't think it's as simple as just reducing it to sort of self-interest and bureaucratic survival, but I think right. that could be part of the issue as, as well. But I think ultimately these were people who were engaged in pioneering techniques, learning as they were doing, and they didn't have a lot of humility about the knowledge that they were producing, and they, didn't, they weren't critical enough, they weren't self-critical enough to try to be aware of the gaps, that, the knowledge gaps that might exist given the state of science at that time. And that's pretty obvious, I think, when you read through the material and you look closely at their methodologies and so on. Well, the book is uh, Hunters at the Margin, Native People and Wildlife Conservation in the Northwest Territories. John, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, this was uh, excellent. And Thanks for having me. Okay, well, thanks very much. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by 
John Sandloss, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche.uwo.ca slash nature's past, where you can also download new episodes and subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. Thanks for listening, and be sure to download our next episode. From the moment that I turned and walked away, I remembered all the things I meant to say. How could it be that maybe I'm afraid to love you truly?